Well, today is day four of the double murder trial of Kyler Eust. Court just wrapped up around 5.45. It was kind of a roller coaster today, uh, to be honest. We started the day uh, with a seance. They played the wiretap recording, the conclusion of that recording um, in which Kyler Eust and witness Caitlin Ferris attempted to contact Car Kapetsky's spirit with a Ouija board. And from there, um, we heard stories of more alleged confessions from former friends of Kyler Use. And today we also moved into witness testimony in the Jessica Runyon's case. And her mother got on the stand and testified. And a lot of what we heard was an email exchange between Kyler and Jessica and um, some phone recordings to end the day. So I'm Haley Godburn. And Today, I'm joined by Andres Gutierrez, who is in the media workroom for us and tweeting up a storm today. So Andres, welcome. Thank you so much. What a day. What a day indeed. So I mentioned we started the day with the wiretap recording. We had about two more hours of that to listen to. Can you kind of go through um, what all was said in those last two hours and kind of some of the reaction? Yeah, so we picked up where they left off. And this is right the moment where they're about to do the Ouija board. And they do the Ouija board in the wooded area. And uh, we have, at some point, them spelling out the word kill. Uh, soon after the Ouija board is wrapped up, they're starting to drive around. And as they're pulling away, uh, Kyler essentially says, I effing killed her. Uh, and then followed a few minutes later, he says, doesn't it turn you on? Aren't you turned on by the fact that I killed this girl? Uh, and he tells this to Caitlin Ferris, the former girlfriend who is now working with the FBI cooperating and in trying to you know, get him to do this confession, which he does. And it sees so nonchalant about it as he says it. Right. He almost says it in a joking way to her. Like, aren't you turned on by the way that I killed this? You know, the fact that I killed this girl. Uh, so those two uh, confessions, those two instances really were kind of the bombshell testimony from that wiretap that the defense team fought so hard to keep out of the trial during motion hearings uh, leading up uh, to where we are now. Right. And so Caitlin Ferris got back on the stand after that recording finished up and the defense kind of cross-examined her and kind of painted this picture that she wore the wire for to potentially get some reward money. And um, I think the prosecution kind of countered that point with um, asking her, you know, why did you wear this wire? And Ferris said she felt conflicted about it because she was still good friends with Kyler. Um, but ultimately, she said if she had been in the same position as these girls' families, she would want somebody to do the same thing for her. So um, really interesting perspective to start the day. And they kind of wrapped up the Kopetsky uh, witness testimony uh, with a um, with a former or no, with a current FBI agent. Um, and he talked about cell phone records. Um, and then uh, we kind of got into the Runyon's case. And the first witness on the stand for that was Jessica's mother, Jamie Runyon's. Andres, can you talk about her testimony and if there was any reaction to that? Yeah, with her, it was really kind of just laying the foundation as to who Jessica was, you know, how how old she was, where she was in life, how she had recently had some uh, surgery for a, a rupture uh, for an appendix. And so she was going through some health troubles and in fact had an appointment set up the day after she disappeared on the, uh, the 9th. She was supposed to go to have 
I go see a doctor uh, to go essentially give her the, the okay to go back to work. And so Jamie, obviously heartbroken over what happened to her daughter, uh, but also just laid out how they searched for her and searched for her in those seven months that they were looking for her, how you know, kind of agonizing those months were. Uh, what was surprising was that the defense team did not cross-examine her. They did not ask any questions unlike what they did to Rhonda. Now, we don't know what the strategy was uh, behind that. I'm not sure if in uh, Kapetsky's case, if they were just trying to show how much time had passed in the time that she disappeared and to where they are now. Uh, just because Jessica's case is so much earlier, you know, with her disappearing in 2016 and then the remains being found, you know, in 2017. Um, but that kind of did kind of strike us that no questions were asked. Uh, but again, just painting a picture of who Jessica was, a 20 year old who uh, ha had essentially met Tyler used through her current uh, boyfriend, uh, you know, and the, at the time, you know, they were going through a rocky relationship, Jackson and uh, Jessica were, and Jackson was himself having some health issues. And it sounds like during that time that he was sick, Tyler, uh, a friend of Jackson's, essentially swooped in and uh, started a, a relationship uh, behind their, because Jackson had no idea until all of this came, you know, really uh, came to light that what had been happening, at least not so recently, you know, he, he right, just a couple, a couple of weeks prior to her disappearance, he learned about what had happened. And then he talks about how Kyler, at some point, once, you know, so Jackson knew that they were seeing each other. Uh, and so Kyler drunkenly started showing about three to four times to their home. Uh, they, Jackson and Jessica lived at a house over in the Paseo. Uh, in fact, we, I ended up going to Doorknock uh, about a day or two after she disappeared in September of 16 uh, to try and get his side of what, what had happened that night. And uh, there was no answer there at the door, uh, but it sounds like that's the place where they had lived. Uh, and really the way Jackson described it is that their relationship, they'd been together for about three years and when they moved in together to that home on, on Paseo, things started going rocky. And uh, Jessica, I guess, started essentially seeing uh, Kyler. Uh, and uh, that's where kind of everything, uh, that's how the, you know, but again, uh, Jackson being the connection of how the two of them uh, had that connection with Kyler used. Yeah, Andres, I think something that stood out to both of us today was just the level of detail that we began to learn, um, you know, reading the court documents in the beginning, it, you don't really get that level of detail or even the motion behind it from the witnesses themselves. And you mentioned that doctor's appointment. Well, today we learned that Jessica had had an appendectomy and she needed to go to this follow-up appointment in order to be able to go back to work. And I don't think that was context that we had before. It kind of underlines the importance of that appointment and how odd it was for her not to show up to it. Um, and something else we learned a lot of detail about today was the um, party or the, the gathering of people she was at the night before she um, went missing. So can you talk a little bit about what was said in court about that today? Right, so a few months before, uh, Alan Alvarado, uh, who 
essentially had rekindled his friendship with Tyler Use that year, uh, had met just and he just wanted to hang out with Jessica, just the him, uh, a friend of his and the friend's uh, brother, they all ended up having a night, supposed to go out to SEBs on a Thursday night, that those plans didn't come together as they wanted. So they were like, you know what, we're just going to hang out, uh, do, you know, light up the fire pit and just hang out, have a couple of drinks. And it really was, Alan, who by the way, said in court today is gay, had no, wanted nothing to do with Jessica. Uh, he invited Jessica over just to hang out as friends. Uh, but then Kyler found out and he got upset that he wasn't invited to this. And Alan made it clear to Jessica that he didn't want Kyler over. So when he show, when, when Jessica showed up with Kyler at around nine o'clock that evening, it kind of surprised him. And the one notable thing that Alan and a friend, Tiffany Vest, testified today was how intoxicated uh, Kyler was by the time he, he just seemed out of it. He seemed like he had been drinking earlier in that evening and just wasn't acting himself. And they were all hanging out outside. And at one point, the the Alan always locks the back door, as he usually does. And he, it was by accident, but Kyler ended up getting locked out of the house and he got really upset, uh, then learned that they all had been smoking weed inside the bed, one of the bedrooms of the house. Uh, one of the girls, Tiffany, comes out, finds that Kyler is upset outside that he, has, he wasn't inside the house. And things just kind of then took a sour note, right? And, and he was just talking about how use uh, uh, was having constantly these mood swings at one point he there you know he's laughing you know having a good time and the next thing you know he's upset about something he, you know he gets loses his cool when they change the music uh you know uh, and and at some point when he thinks that uh, Kyler is under the impression that uh alan's trying to make a move on jessica he gets really upset to the point where he grabs Alan and leaves a mark on his arm. And Alan texts Jessica and says, you guys got to go. And now this is around 1130 or so. Um, and uh, they all start, you know, it's apparently an amicable, like at this point, Kyler apparently has been drinking, has been, you know, chugging uh, vodka, Grey Goose vodka and wine. And he's just completely wasted. And but they end the night on some amicable, besides the grabbing of the arm incident, they end the night amicably. Uh, he, they all uh, hug goodbye. And Kyler's like, I'm going to back out the car because Jessica's like, I don't know how to reverse the vehicle. So, uh, you know, in his drunken stupor, he decides to get in the vehicle and back out the car. And as soon as he does that, he hits Alan Ma Alan's mom's car. And so Alan, you know, also gets upset about this, takes the picture. That picture apparently is timestamped at 1142. So that at least they have a documentation as to when they were leaving the home. Um, and so Kyler, after hitting Alan's mom's car, gets out of the vehicle and Jessica gets in the driver's seat. And that's the last time anyone ever sees the two of them together. So it, it kind of fills a lot of the gaps as to what this party was about, when they were last seen, what took place at the party. These were all questions that we had no answers to. 
And in fact, in the days that followed her disappearance, we uh, at our station tried to find those answers by tracking down these friends. And unfortunately, none of them uh, wanted to speak. So until today, we had no idea uh, what had occurred at that party. Yeah, definitely. The testimony today helped fill a lot of gaps in the timeline. And um, I, I re specifically remember Alan getting a little emotional when he talked about telling Jessica to text him or get in touch with him some way when she got home safe. And he just said she never did. And so some really, really good testimony today that helped fill some holes. The day closed out with testimony from Sergeant Barbara Eckert. She was formerly with the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. She's retired now, but she was in charge of the homicide squad uh, who, that which investigated Jessica's homicide case. And she uh, was charged with, or not charged, she read and it pretty lengthy exchange of emails between Eust and Jessica. And it seemed like they were breaking up. I don't really know what to make of them. It's the theme throughout this trial so far has kind of been describing use erratic behavior. And I think that was clear in these emails too. And Andres, I'm kind of wondering um, what you thought of those emails and also what you think the point of having them read in court was today. I think the prosecution is really trying to lay out and show people kind of the mental state that Kyler used was in at the time when all this happened. Uh, the emails at some point also were really graphic. I, I mean, it's what two lovers would tell each other, you know, in some points in really graphic detail uh, surrounding sex. Uh, but then a lot of the, them, some of the others were just about how kind of clingy he was, how he just was professing his love and how he, she was the one that he wanted to be with. But Jessica said, I can't give you what I want, what you want. Uh, you know, she, uh, I think sex was a big thing, a uh, center point of, their, of, of what she couldn't provide him. Uh, and there was also an age difference between the two. Um, at some point, you know, she says, you know, you're going to be able to go down to the lake and just ha hang out with people your own age and, uh, you know, essentially telling him to move on, uh, but he can't move on. Uh, and, and I think it goes to the point that they were just trying, uh, other friends of his attested how he kind of was a jealousy person, right? And, and, and even in Alan's testimony, how he lost his cool when he thought that Alan was making a move on Jessica, even though he, you know, Alan's gay. Uh, and so just, just the, just, just a, again, trying to create a picture that, you know, used as a, an, an emotional being that just could flip at, you know, pretty quickly. Yes. And I think that was clear in two phone calls that were played at the very end of today as well. They were phone calls from use from the Jackson County Detention Center to his mom, when, in which he made some pretty shocking statements. Um, what did you make of those, Andres? Well, he essentially berates his mom, uh, even though his mother is saying, you know, I love you, even though you've been arrested again, I still love you. I'll be visiting you in jail. Um, and she just is trying to comfort him as he's going through this traumatic time, what I can imagine being locked up in jail, uh, being accused of burning Jessica's car. 
And he is like, well, I need you to go get me a book. I need this book from Barnes and Noble. You know, you've never gotten me a, a birthday gift in the last five years. And, you know, accusing her of, you know, having a, ch you know, a child out of wedlock and just making these accusations while his mom is just trying to comfort him. Um, it, it's, it's difficult to, to hear, uh, really, honestly, listening, sitting through those, it was pretty tough. Um, and then in a second phone call that they played uh, from the jail, uh, the mom believes that he knows where Jessica is and he, she is essentially pleading with him to let police know where she is, uh, that you know, he, you know she, he's alive, he's there, she can go visit him in jail, but the parents of Jessica don't have her and finding you know, her, her body would bring some type of closure to the family. And so she was basically pleading on that call. Uh, and it was in that second call, pretty brief, about uh, two minutes uh, before he hangs up on her. Um, so that's how kind of the day panned out. And we anticipate uh, they, they did uh, end the, uh, the day with uh, taking, they don't need any more testimony from Sergeant Eckert who is now retired from the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. But at the time of Jessica's disappearance, she was the supervisor of the homicide squad that was assigned to this uh, case. Right. So like you said, that's where we wrapped up for the day. In total, I think we heard from 12 witnesses. And tomorrow they get started again at 830 in the morning with more testimony in the Runyon's case. For our listeners, I want to remind you that you can find this and all of our other episodes at kshb.com slash used trial. And you can also find all of our time-stamped uh, live blogs from the trial and also case details, timeline, all, all the information you could want about this case that we know so far is there. And Andres, thank you for joining us and we look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.